Hello, welcome to another episode of Think Sociological. My name is Dr. Jack Isherwood. In this episode, we'll go through the two dominant schools of thought in sociology, structural functionalism and conflict theory, and explain why they're useful perspectives in understanding social issues. Functionalism is a school of sociological thought which emerged in the 19th century at a period of significant social change with the emergence of industrialized capitalism. Some of the major theorists of functionalism include Auguste Comte, Emile Durkheim, Robert Merton, and Talcott Parsons. The central question functionalist sociologists pose is this. How is social order and stability possible in the face of constantly changing social circumstances? As a consequence, functionists are very concerned with the role that social institutions play in the maintenance of social order and stability in society. They generally assume that while social institutions have different social roles and their own internal norms, values, procedures, so on and so forth, they ultimately work collaboratively together as they're all interconnected and interdependent. This explains why functionists use the organic analogy of the human body to explain how society works. Just as the human brain and the human heart cannot exist without each other, each part of society, according to the functionists, contributes a role in maintaining the order and the stability of the system as a whole. This has the important implication that when a functionalist seeks to examine a particular dimension of society, they'll always attempt to understand its implications for the operation of other parts of society too, as they believe that no part of society ever operates in isolation from each other. In addition, functionists are also very much interested in social institutions because they believe that they are pivotal to our socialization in a given society's dominant norms, values, and beliefs. They also articulate our social roles and social expectations of interpersonal conduct, serving as a basis for underlying social consensus. For instance, social agreements, which we learn through practices of socialization regarding our gender roles, shape the everyday activities and self-understandings of men and women in society. Consequently, functionalism assumes that when social institutions break down for whatever reason, or when they fail to operate effectively, they can create social dysfunctions or social problems. So, for example, when the economic system enters a recession, unemployment is created, which also contributes to other social problems, such as health uh, issues. Interestingly, functional socio Functional sociologists argue that there are two broad kinds of functions in society. On the one hand, social institutions or other social agents can deliberately intentionally act in order to achieve a predetermined outcome. When this is achieved, social actors can be said to have attained their manifest functions. On the other hand, social action can often lead to latent functions, which refers to the unintended consequences of actions which are often socially invisible. These functions, whether they are manifest or latent, can be positive or negative for society. For instance, while economic growth might fulfill its intended purpose of increasing material wealth, this can be offset by unintended social environmental impacts. Another intriguing and seemingly counterintuitive aspect of functionalism is the claim that sometimes social dysfunctions can actually have a positive social or functional consequence for society as a whole. 
For instance, fungus often argue that while crime can be socially harmful, it can actually lead a community to reaffirm its central moral values or beliefs, thereby acting as a reaffirmation of solidarity. Crime and other acts of social deviance can also promote positive social change, such as, such as revisions in the legal system. Functionalism, though, as a school of sociological thought, has some significant problems, which explains why it has largely been displaced by other schools of sociological thought, particularly within uh, the decades from the 1950s onwards. And there's a number of reasons for this. Firstly, functionalism assumes that society is characterized by moral consensus. As a result, it's been argued that it often ignores societal disagreements and conflicts, particularly regarding the distribution of social resources. Consequently, it has been associated with political conservatism, even though such a ch charge is not quite fair. In addition, critics have argued that functionalism has little to say about individual agency or everyday social interactions, given its focus on broader uh, structural processes in society. Having said all this, functionalism is useful as a sociological tool because it allows us to understand the role of social norms and beliefs in the development of our own identities and how uh, social norms, social beliefs contribute to the reproduction of social order and the institutional working of public institutions. So on this note, let us turn to conflict theory. The first point to note about conflict theory is that it emerged at a rejection of some of the key ideas of structural functionalism, which we've just discussed. Rather than emphasizing that society is organized according to a consensus regarding social norms and values, conflict theory contends that society is fundamentally divided on the basis of unequal distributions of wealth, social prestige, and power between different groups. As a result, certain groups in society enjoy privilege and advantage, while other groups suffer from exclusion, marginalization, and other forms of social mistreatment. Importantly, conflict theory holds that groups benefiting from unequal access and control over social resources attempt to maintain their superior social positioning through a variety of strategies. Firstly, because more powerful groups generally possess greater political power, they can use the power of coercion through the state to implement public policies which serve their interests, while undermining the interests of less powerful communities. For instance, wealthier households might make political do donations, or powerful business entities might engage in lobbying efforts to secure lucrative government contracts, to reduce their taxation rate, or to change legislation which they find financially burdensome. In addition, Conflict theorists point out that frequently an individual or social group's social status shapes how they are treated by the legal system. For instance, you might have noticed how whenever there's a mass shooting, if the perpetrator is white, the media immediately seems to focus on whether that person suffered from a mental illness. However, if the person is non-white, automatically it's assumed that an act of terrorism has occurred. Similarly, you might have noticed that white-collar crimes, such as those committed by bankers during the global financial crisis, rarely get punished severely, while relatively minor offences committed by individuals from minority groups get harshly treated by the uh, judiciary. Secondly, 
Conflict theorists argue that more powerful groups can use ideological power to secure their superior material position by attempting to persuade members of a society that they morally deserve their superior social position and control over social resources and political power. For instance, the, uh, the ideological power of the media might be used to foreground particular narratives which serve, critical, um, which serve privileged communities, such as the claim that cutting the tax rate will improve, improve economic growth, even though there's considerable evidence to suggest that this simply is not the case. Ideological power is also extremely important because through the act of creating negative labels, entire groups can become socially stigmatized. Whenever this occurs, it can be very difficult for individuals to critically question practices of discrimination, discrimi exploitation, discrimination, and other forms of social mistreatment or punishment, because it is believed that the situation is natural or normal. In other words, it is believed that stigmatized individuals or groups deserve their negative social treatment. One example of this is the tendency to decry individuals or communities receiving government welfare assistance as being, quote, dull bludgers, even though there's a lack of jobs available in the economy relative to the number of individuals seeking work, and even though there are many kinds of discrimination, such as racial or gender discrimination, which can hinder people gaining employment in the first place. These individuals or groups are thereby blamed blamed as being lazy or work shy, even though they only have limited op opportunities actually available to them, and they suffer from social hostility in their everyday lives as a consequence of the negative social perceptions which are created in the media, for example. While conflict theorists argue that these strategies of coercion and ideological power are very significant, they also highlight that members of marginalized communities can find numerous ways to challenge the unjust social status quo because resistance is always generated by the existence of inequality in society. As a consequence, conflict theorists do not assume that social conflict is inherently morally bad. In fact, the experience of conflict can be a very powerful mechanism for progressive social change. This point leads us to two key theorists of conflict theory, namely Karl Marx and Max Weber. Karl Marx was a German economist and political theorist writing during the 19th century. Marx argued that the progression of human history is fundamentally driven by class conflict. He argued that class conflict generates certain contradictions in every historical form of social organization, which leads to social change. Marx argues that the dominant contemporary economic system, capitalism, is characterized by the contradiction that societies polarized between the proletariat, or the working classes, and the bourgeoisie, or the capitalist class, who have fundamentally opposing interests. Each class is trapped in a conflictual relationship. The working class, because they are obliged under the pain of starvation the absence of the modern welfare state to sell their labor to capitalists, who in return receive all the profits from the labour and who have the ability to control the working conditions in terms of the workers. Marx believed that workers under a capitalist system suffer from alienation because they had no control over their working routines, the product of their labour, and because the nature of their work was often deeply psychologically unsatisfying and they lacked the ability to develop meaningful relationships with their fellow workers because they were often in competition with each other to secure precarious work.
Indeed, Marx was concerned that even though workers were being systemically exploited under the system, it was often very difficult for them to develop what he termed a class consciousness, which enabled them to understand the nature of their exploitation and for them to form solidarity with their fellow workers. However, Marx argued that if the labor movement was successful at growing the sense of collective consciousness, this should translate into revolutionary action, ensuring the collapse of the capitalist system and its eventual replacement with communism. This brings us to the work of Max Weber. Weber was a German legal and economic theorist who lived slightly after Marx, and he was once sympathetic and critical of Marx's arguments regarding class. While he agreed that class was an important source of social conflict, he also claimed that Marx's framework was ultimately too simplistic in understanding modern power relationships in society. Firstly, Weber noted that other forms of power shape the actions of individuals and social groups, including their social prestige and their positions within bureaucratic organizations. Secondly, Weber noted that individuals can belong to multiple and often conflicting groups in society, which has significant implications for how they are socially perceived and how they're socially treated, particularly with respect to their life chances, that is to say, the opportunities and capacities open to an individual to improve their lives. Lastly, Weber arguably had a much more richer sense of the different ways in which power can be exercised in society compared to Marx, who generally narrowly understood power in economic terms, the capacity in particular for certain categories of people to control the means of production in society. Weber, however, proposed that authority can be exercised in society in at least three different ways. Firstly, power can be bestowed as a consequence of social tradition. Power can be created on the basis of formalized rules and regulations, such as those operating in a bureaucratic organization. And power can also be created as a consequence of individuals possessing certain charismatic qualities or personality traits that inspire loyalty and devotion in their followers. So in summary, why is conflict theory useful? Firstly, allows us to understand the power dynamics between different groups in society, allowing us to appreciate that unequal distributions of wealth, power and social status profoundly shape the quality of people's lives. It enables us to see that inequality as social causes. It's not natural or inevitable. It's something that's actively socially created and reproduced. And that inequality creates particular social problems and societal conflicts. Secondly, it allows us to understand against the functions that societal order is not just based on shared norms and values, but also interests and the ability to, to exercise political power over others. Society, therefore, is not a harmonious entity characterized by moral and political consensus. Rather, it's profoundly divided by conflict. And lastly, it allows us to understand that conflict is inevitable. Any system with inequalities will invariably create relationships of domination and resistance. So understanding these dynamics can help sociologists to better understand particular social problems and to propose ways of addressing them. So I hope that breakdown of functionalism and conflict theory was useful and clear. And 
I hope you listened to another episode of Think Sociological. Thank you for your time.